Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk. Yes, you can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up today, Shane Pearson went from working on the family farm to becoming a neuro linguistic programming coach. He'll tell a little bit more about that journey. And singer Pamela Tully was diagnosed with a brain tumour during the pandemic. And she'll join me to talk about what she has learned from that experience. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, I am tired, but good. It'll be nice to have the midterm break, I think, to down a couple of the spinning plates. But there will be the frenzy of Halloween, of course, which I am fully invested in. We've already had my daughter's birthday party, a Halloween theme. So I've been doing that, decorating, putting on costumes, carving pumpkins and, of course, dressing them all up for the school competition. So It's been madness, the number of thoughts and tasks that any person has in any one day. But I think it's really important and you'll hear from Pamela Tully a little bit later about the life lessons. Sometimes we get so caught up in the frenzy and how challenging it all is that we forget to look around at the magic that it all is. And I completed a five week course for parents of kids with dyslexia this week. My son was diagnosed last year. I know I've spoken about it before on the show and it was actually offered through the school It was fully free and I think we often give out and rightly so about the supports that aren't there. So I think it's important we celebrate the ones that are. It was given by the most wonderful woman called Sharon who also teaches adult literacy and she was as warm and engaging as she was knowledgeable and all the parents in the group got to share their experience. Everyone had kids at various levels and it was just a lovely experience. I learned so much about things like our working memory, different learning styles. And I learned that how the methods which suit those with learning challenges would suit all students, whereas the current system we have doesn't suit those with learning challenges. So why don't we just have an inclusive system? I covered dyslexia on the show, as I said, a couple of weeks back. We had a parent, Michelle, and an educational psychologist who both said, and it was said throughout the course too, that teachers aren't being served by the system either. Research figures from 2021 show that only 18% of teachers have received specific training for learning difficulties. But the flip side and the good news is that 92% are interested in learning more. Now, I feel quite lucky. My son's diagnosis is mild and so far he's happy enough in school, doesn't let him get him down or hold him back. And I hope that in his school life and time and that of my little girl, that things change and not just for my kids, but for all. And meeting people on a course like that, it reminds you of the power of human connection. Everyone was sharing tips or tricks or venting frustrations. And I was actually quite sad to say goodbye to the process this week, which surprised me as I was kind of dreading it. And I did it almost out of obligation. So a reminder to always try something new, push out of the comfort zone and learn. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. News Talk's Weekend of Winning. Now, we have a very special bank holiday weekend prize for you and your family, one they will never forget. It's an amazing family trip for two adults and two children to Disneyland Paris. This includes return flights to Paris with coach transfers to Disneyland. Three nights B&B in Disney Hotel New York, the art of Marvel. Team passes for four days with €500 spending money. 
To enter, just answer this question. Who is Mickey Mouse's sweetheart? Is it A, Minnie, or B, Pluto? Text the word play and then A or B to 57557. That's 57557. Text costs €2.50 plus your standard message rate to play. You have to be over 18. You are playing across the Go Loud network of stations. Full terms are on our website at newstalk.com. Get your entry into us by 10pm on Monday night. The question again is, who is Mickey Mouse's sweetheart? Is it A, Minnie or B, Pluto? Text play and A or B to 57557. Good luck. Now, Shane Pearson has been working in health and wellness for over 20 years. Starting out being coached, he has gone on to coach at individual level and now helps coaches themselves to reach their full potential. He joins me in studio now. Hello, Shane. Hi, Claire. So you started out, strangely enough, in farming. Yes. Um, It was that logical step from full-time farming to health and wellness coaching. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Well, we do profess the power of nature and you were very much in nature, but this was a family farm. So like many people, it's hard to know exactly what you want to do at 18. So Ah. from school, you turn to the family farm. Yeah, absolutely. So I I left school and like probably like a lot of people, I I just didn't know what I wanted to, to do. So luckily for me, there was options. I went home and soon got absorbed into the family farm, which is a busy farm. And, you know, for a good 10 years, I enjoyed it most of the time. <laughs> and then, but around but, but 28, 30, I started to really feel an itch. Uh, and it was it was a deeper calling that I, I didn't feel like I was really doing what I was here to do. And it was, I just couldn't scratch that itch. And I, I, I know there's going to be people listening who can relate to that, but they don't know where to start. Mm. So what was that first step you took? So I suppose... I, the, the non-major stuff was my mindset shifted and I was really started to read a lot of nutrition, health, well-being. I was fascinated by the mindset. So I did all of that kind of without interfering with my life. I would just absorb and read and, and get and, and learn a lot. But then there was an, a big moment where I, I, I found myself at a, at a four-day self-development seminar in London with a guy called Tony Robbins, a famous motivational speaker. And, you know, by the by the end of the first evening... Myself and 12,000 other people were walking over, you know, eight foot beds of hot, burning hot coals. <laughs> and he was using the power of the mind to just to change our perception of that. So that fascinating me. And I really was hooked in the mindset and the power of the mind. And when I, I, I learned on, on the seminar that he used a, a technique called neurolinguistic programming or NLP. So I went home, I found a course, I trained in it as soon as I could. And... That was a massive turning point because I, I left that course. I found my first client within a few days. I started to get results. I was excited and I just wanted to, to know what was was possible and help help more people. So that was a big turning point. Um, and it then led to, you know, years of training in NLP um, around the world and uh, nutritional therapy and then coaching. Because I suppose that's interesting then to hear from people. It was just things that you were automatically gravitating to through the books that you were reading and the topics that were lighting mm. you up. You just leaned into that a little bit more. So there was a, a course, I've done that very same seminar. I've walked okay. that, those hot coals. I yeah. sometimes forget. I sometimes yeah. remind myself in a, st- a stressful situation. Why didn't you think you could do it? Because you walked across hot coals. Yeah. But anyway, um, from there, that led to another decision. So sometimes we don't know what our destination yeah. is, but we're just 
meandering along and mm. we're, we're not told about the meander. We're told you need to know where you're going and, you know, set mm. the point and go. Whereas you just kind of put the feelers out and, 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 and it led you on each time. Yeah. So, you know, there's a, a metaphor that I like to use. It was if you think of stepping stones, but they're under the surface of the water, you know, and you can just see the next one. You can just, oh, and you, you put your, you can just, you kind of think you can see, you're pretty sure there's a stone there and you put one foot out and you have to trust your balance that you take that step. But once that foot hits the, the other stepping stone, you go, brilliant. And it's just a step on the way. And next thing you're on that step and you're looking for the next step. So I could only ever see one step ahead, the next step. But there was a, I think there was a knowing inside me that these were going to lead somewhere. But to bring me back to that decision point, like the um, self-development seminar and the firewalking, that really helped me make the big decision that I had a, I had a beautiful life la- laid out for me. My parents had worked hard and they'd had a busy farm. I, there was a good life there and I had to say no to that, to say yes to this internal calling or just a, a curiosity. And that was hard, that internal process of change, you know, that. but then when, when I made it, it, things just opened up and flowed. And how was this change received by your family, by your friends? This this is a big, mm. a big change. And I think, you know, 20 years ago, there wasn't as much talk about the power of positive thinking or, mm. you know, anything like this. So, I mean, it was quite a different path you were going on. We didn't have the social media access we have now. Yeah. People know more who Tony Robbins is. So how was that message landing that you were going this path? Yeah, I'm incredibly grateful that it was um, it was received. My family were amazing and they they didn't try and force or stop me. They just accepted my decision. My friends are, were great. They just thought I was going through another phase <laughs> and perhaps I was, you know, but I didn't get massive resistance. What I, my learning from that was my, what my projection was. It was, oh, I'd be rejected. They'll think do this. And, and the fear of the, of the worst possible scenario, the, the internal catastrophizing that we do, that was the big barrier. The reality was, it was way, way easier than when I made the decision myself. It was way easier than I thought it would be. Yeah, it's just getting to that decision point. So it was NLP that really fascinated you, neuro-linguistic programming, Mm. seeing it in action when you walked across the hot coals. What is it to explain to people? You know, it's probably a good way to think about it is applied psychology. So it was always always designed to to create results. And it works at... um, it looks at the mind and kind of breaks into two parts. You have a conscious mind that perhaps I'm engaging with you now, but in this unconscious part, there are many other factors at play that drive our behavior. Uh, so NLP was a, a way to to look under the hood, get into, under the bonnet of the this machine we have and, and understand the mind in a new way. And some of these paradoxes, you know, if, if you know, change... Not being able to change a habit or having a compulsion or an embarrassing blush or something for certain reasons. So realizing, ah, there's another part of our minds that that operates differently than the conscious mind, but that they should really be operating in union and in in harmony. But a lot of times it's a conflict like I had, you know, my head was saying one thing, my heart was saying another thing. So um, applied psychology some people call it the operator's manual for the brain, for the human brain. So it gives you this map or uh, not a map, a, uh, a structure to understand your own mind and, and other people's minds uh, differently. And in a, in, a, in a way that gives you more 
uh, more ways in to make those changes or to influence or create bring about a positive change. So what governs our subconscious mind? How does what's in there get in there? And then how do you get what's not serving you out of there? Mm, yeah, so the I think the thing to remember about that difference in the conscious and unconscious mind is, is the unconscious mind, it's kind of neutral. And it has a fantastic memory. <laughs> so I think a lot of our problems that we, as we grow up with adults, we find that, oh, they have their roots in our memory because it was an experience in the past at some stage. And in the experience, there might have been something felt that was comfortable, exciting or great or, you know, discomfortable or uncomfortable and meaning. We give it meaning. So what happens outside of our conscious awareness? So we make decisions. Um, often when we're very young, we make some, you know, really big decisions about who we are and who we should be or who we could be and uh, what what is best for us. So we're, when before, especially before we were seven, we're just kind of soaking up the world around us. I've got two kids now. It's fascinating to see to see this in, in action. Um, so they're all, all of our experiences are influencing us. But, but our conscious mind in the, in the model is only aware of about probably only 1% of all that's going on at any one time. So it doesn't have the capacity to have this, you know, broad spectrum awareness. So the unconscious, the unconscious part of us, you know, it gets us up, it's regulating our heartbeat, it's telling us when we're hungry, it's telling us when we're tired, it's, it's, uh, it's directing us also in ways perhaps less aware of, subtly at times. So the thing to remember is that the, the yeah, I think the conscious mind sometimes try to be, tries to be a dictator and to to force the unconscious body what to do, you know, and we get very uncomfortable with some of our challenges or problems, especially when our body or our mind isn't doing what we want it to do. And that leads to frustration, but really it's a sign, it's a sign that these two minds aren't really in harmony, aren't in rapport. So I suppose NLP helps you create ah, a structure that helps you get these two minds in rapport, get them both talking to each other in a new way, and ultimately it's to bring about a resolution. So that both minds are now working as one. And is it a form of, of, of hypnotherapy or is it a form of talk therapy? H- how does it work in practice? Yeah, so the the NLP was brought about by studying um, uh, different models of excellence, people who are doing incredible jobs at bringing about a, a change around the world. So hypnotherapy was one element that was studied and it does influence it. However, I, I, I can't, I've studied in hypnotherapy as well, but I didn't pursue that one. Um, it's more about talking, but when you're listening, you're not listening to the story, you're listening to the structure of the language because the, how, we, how we construct our language, the language patterns, is telling us about, it gives you clues as to um, the structure of our thinking. And when you can listen to the words and hear the structure of how someone is thinking or how you're thinking yourself, you can sort of create a bit of a map and go, ah, and then determine, okay, for that structure to be there, you know, what what must be holding that up? So sometimes there's a limiting belief about ourselves or sometimes there's a, a value conflict. And you go, ah, okay. So then with that awareness, you start to be able to, I suppose, you know, um, I don't like to say diagnose, but yeah, diagnose what structured element of the way we're thinking may be a problem. And then you have tools that you're trained in that you can use to um, to bring about a resolution or bring about a change. Because our mind and our brains are, are energy savers, aren't they? So we're constantly trying to collate information together to save our time the next time, which is why when we get into habits, 
like driving the car. It's mm. a massive learning, steep learning curve. But then all of a sudden you're doing it without even thinking. So yeah. moving from one place to the other, we constantly try to compress things and we can do that with certain feelings or limiting beliefs. So mm-hmm. when we go to try something new, our instant thought is, I can't do that. I wouldn't be able for yeah. that. Or like you were saying, my family won't accept that I don't want to yeah. work on the farm. And just spending some time on that and stepping back and saying, no, hang on, that's not necessarily the way it is. Is that the awareness you're trying to bring about? Yeah, so I suppose the, a, a guide here is we, we make it, we're, our whole lives, we're, we're meaning-making machines and we, we don't <laughs> take the time to really... Um, analyze all our decisions and, and the meaning we're giving it. So we're looking for assumptions. We're, we're looking for the truth. Um, and sometimes, a lot of time when you're listening to a client or listening to yourself, your own thoughts, you're writing it. If you just mind, you know, how, how do I know that to be true? And there's some linguistic patterns in NLP I learned that either just give you these good questions. And those questions can start to dismantle. It's like, yeah, like, who says I can't? You know, what if I could do that? And uh do I really want to do it? So we'll start asking better questions to to guide, the questions kind of guide us into the unconscious. So a better question will will give you better results. I think we hear so much about living to the best of our potential at the moment, you know, living your best life and what you're manifesting and, and all that side of, of things. And I wonder what to you is the definition of, of living to your full potential? Okay, so the word that I becoming increasingly important is authenticity, you know, because that same mind that I spoke about, the unconscious mind, and it's been influenced by, you know, our whole lives, it's been getting different different influences. So a lot of the time we're, we're, we think we know who we want to be and we get ideas about what, you know, success or stardom or fame or um, that kind of stuff means or should be. So what I'm really interested in is helping a person really tap into what's what their innate wisdom, their innate gifts are. So it's, I think it's unfortunately the simple, <laughs> there's no short, simple answer, but it's like everybody has to find out within themselves. And in my experience, it's not always easy. There's we're covered, we've covered up some of our our individuality, our um, our own gifts, our own perhaps our own purpose with what I call conditioning from, you know, from some society, from from voices, from ourselves and, and from so many influences that we don't always aware are affecting us. Yeah. And aside from, you know, our family or our experiences as, as we're growing up, you're right. There's a lot of the way we set up society, which teaches us what we're supposed to aspire yeah. to. So, you know, we celebrate doing well in exams, coming first in a race or, you know, winning the cup in sport. It's always to be the best. Mm. Whereas I think that authenticity to just be the real essence of you, because I I think even people like Tony Robbins originally were selling capitalism and it was to be Mm. the best and make the most money. But even those thought leaders got to the top and said, Mm. actually, this isn't what it's all about. And now begin to change their message to having contentment in yourself and also Mm. to to giving back. Yeah. Contribution. Um, No, totally true. So sometimes it's sometimes you you just go and you you strive to become who you think you should become or what will make you happy. And then realize when you're there that, oh, actually, that's not not as fulfilling to me as I thought. It's no big deal. You've learned, you've progressed, you've proven to yourself that you can achieve those things. But um, have you heard about the in the um, 
the three different kinds of lives in terms of happiness and, no. and kind of positive psychology. So one category of of you know a happy life is looking for that the easy life. So that's kind of like oh, I just love to win the lotto, I never have to work again, and and not have any of these problems. So looking for the easy life. And then the second category was the good life, and that's where the people go. You know, you know, there's more in this life, but you got to work for it. So they're willing to put the effort in and work hard and get more of the rewards. So a lot of us. A lot of people fall into that category. But interestingly, the research has shown that the people who are happiest and most content are the people who have a meaningful life. So they have a sense of purpose and they have, this, they have a sense of meaning to what they do. And from in my awareness of what, you know, really will get you up in the morning, get you through the day, especially the bad days, is when you have a clarity around that meaning and purpose, because that's when you've innately feel like you're contributing, you're giving. And I think that's where some of those thought leaders have have got to a stage where they've satisfied their individual needs. And then it's, ah, I actually feel better when I can give to others and I'm filling up other people's cups as well. Um, To be living that life, do you have to be in a vocation or a frontline worker? Can it be a parent? Can it be a dog walker who takes four dogs up into the mountains and gets into nature every day? We can find gifts in the most simplest of moments. You know, we can, you know, talk about mindfulness or presence. We can sometimes we're always looking outside, and it can be right there in front of us. Now, I think that there are there's amazing mothers out there right now, just you know, caressing their baby to sleep and, and gritting their teeth with all of their frustration. There's there's people who are walking the dogs and being so kind and caring to animals. You know, who've had such a hard ride for times. There are people just doing it, and they're and they're they're invisible to us. But they could be having the most meaningful and, and, and connected uh, lives, whereas someone else is getting all the headlines, but maybe maybe in their inner life, in their inner world, they're, they're, they're actually quite um, hungry or even lost. Yeah, I think that's just a really important point to put out there. And I mentioned in the introduction that you also coach coaches. And, you know, even in, in the scenario you mentioned there, First, there is the reflection and the awareness, but then the action yeah. has to come. And and you've recently started up Momentum to help coaches in particular who have amassed all of this information and knowledge. But aside from coaches, all of us can gather together all of that and know what we want. But sometimes taking that action, there's, there's a block there. Yeah, it's a, it's a term I heard recently. It's called the, uh, the knowledge gap. And I think it's incredible becoming incredibly obvious in the world now of information. You know, it's never been so easy. There's, we all, if you have a smartphone, you have a fast, you know, mo- mo- most of the world's information in your fingertips. So we have a lot of information, but we struggle to p- apply the information and apply it consistently. Sometimes we'll get a great run going with our fitness or our health or our diet. And then, you know, after a few weeks or a few days even, sometimes we start to fall back into our old ways. So action is the hard bit and consistent action, I think, is the the next step. And after it becomes consistent long enough, it becomes easy, like driving the car metaphor you mentioned earlier on. Yeah, well, I think it's fascinating. You're still on the journey. You're still taking stepping stones through the water. Absolutely, yeah. One step at a time. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Shane Pearson. For more, you can go to designyourlifecoaching.ie. Shane Pearson, thank you so much for coming on. A pleasure to be here. Thank you so much, Claire, for having me.
Now, just to let you know that the latest episode of Workplace Wellbeing with Vincent Wall is available right now. This week in the podcast, which helps you to navigate well-being at work, Vincent speaks to a range of expert guests finding out about diversity, inclusion and belonging in the workplace. To listen to the full episode and subscribe now, go to Newstalk.com and also you can tune in on Saturday at 7pm here on Newstalk. That's all with thanks to Leia Healthcare. For trusted healthcare advice, visit LeahHealthcare.ie. Still to come on Alive and Kicking, singer-songwriter Pamela Tully on how a brain tumour diagnosis in the pandemic has led to her taking chances, realising her dreams and not taking no for an answer. Alive and Kicking on Newstalk. Alive and Kicking on Newstalk. Now, my next guest really went through it during the pandemic, a brain tumour diagnosis and the possibility of having speech complications as a result of brain surgery has led her to taking chances, realising dreams and not taking no for an answer. Pamela Tully is a singer-songwriter from Dublin and she joins me in studio now. Hello, Pamela. Hello, Claire. Thank you so much for having me. So we all went through the ringer in various ways, But wow, to have a diagnosis like that really upped the ante. Tell us a bit about how it all started. What led you to to go and seek medical help in the first place? Yeah, sure. Definitely a bit of a game changer, especially throw a pandemic and a brain tumour together. Yeah, it's not the greatest recipe to have, but um, yeah, unfortunately, um, back in 2020, we were all in the middle of the pandemic. We were in the middle of lockdowns as hundreds of people across the country. I was managing working from home, having a one-year-old at home with we and trying to make sure that we were looking after her, myself and my husband. And just before the pandemic had hit, I had started getting headaches. Now, what I would describe them as, nothing out of the ordinary, something that you would take a Panadol or, you know, a a tablet and you would be okay. And unfortunately, they they were constant for me and it started to kind of niggle a little bit at at me. And what I put it down to at the time was obviously having a very young child and trying to juggle work and being a first time mother. There was a lot going on. And something made me, it was niggling at me, something made me go back to my GP. I don't know what it was, maybe it was a gut feeling or something like that. But I went back and thankfully she decided, look, we'll do an MRI and we will rule anything out. Not thinking anything would come up on the MRI. And unfortunately, two days later, I got a phone call to say, we've seen something. And what was said to me at the time was, it's a meningioma, no mention of tumour just meningioma and we need to refer you to Beaumont Hospital. So as I'm sure you can imagine, Google, 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 what does this mean? What do I have to do? Absolute traumatic. I didn't know what was going on. Um, And very quickly I was referred to Beaumont. And like anybody, I'm sure, in a situation like this, when you start Googling, you start being Dr. Google and you see different things and you start to panic. And, you know, I kept saying things about brain tumours and cancer and I was obviously in a bit of a tailspin. And do you think, in a way, it was partly due to life being slowed down that made you go to the GP? Because like you said, when we're all rushing around, you're thinking, I'm getting headaches, I probably didn't sleep well last night, am I drinking enough water, am I stressed? Because who isn't stressed at the minute? Absolutely. I, I definitely put it down to that. Like, I think for me, if we had not been at home, 
I would have put this off. I would not have gone to my GP. I would have put it down to everything you've just said there now. I'm stressed. I'm at home. I'm trying to juggle everything right now, like everybody across the country. I just put it down to being stressed, not getting enough sleep, um, not exercising, the usual things that you think of. Yeah, you kind of blame yourself. A hundred percent. Not that the pandemic wasn't stressful and the working from home and all that, but at least you had... Your husband was at home. Childcare yeah. wasn't an issue. Your daughter wasn't being dropped or picked up from anywhere. So you were like, I'm going to the GP next Tuesday. And that was easier to manage. But either way, you found yourself there. Mm-hmm. So did you bring somebody with you to Bowman or were you caught up in all of that in the pandemic that you thankfully, had to go it alone? Thankfully, I was able to go in with my husband at the time, obviously masked up because you had the precautions. And um, But thankfully, the uh, the surgeon that I was with, his name is Mr. Stephen McAnally, absolute rock star. What I call him, I, I always call him a rock star. Um, I was whisked in there very quickly and I got to see him. My husband was able to come in with me and we started to talk about, you know, what is this? What, what am I now facing into? because I had Googled everything and I was looking at worst case scenarios everywhere and I was getting myself into a bit of a tailspin, as I said. Um, So I went in in June. He showed me the tumour on the screen. Very, very frightening to actually see it because uh, if you can imagine, I'll kind of set the scene a little bit. At this stage, I'm walking around like normal. I am like you can see me right now in studio. I'm walking around. I have headaches, yes, but I'm working. At the time, I was in college. I was doing weddings, which weddings I could do because I'm a singer as well. So I was doing all the normal things. I kind of felt like this is not really happening to me because I would expect somebody, if they're sick or they're told that they have a diagnosis of something, I'd be in hospital or I'd be somewhere, I'd be at home. I wouldn't be doing all of the normal things that I was doing, but I was. So it was very, very hard to wrap my mind around, this is happening and you are actually sick when I didn't feel sick. So when I went into the um, surgeon in June, basically a lot of the time what happens with tumours, depending on the type of tumour, you could go down the route of we'll watch and wait. So we will monitor, we will uh, scan you again, we will have a look at it, we'll see what's going to happen. Or if surgery is an option, we will do surgery. So I was faced with this, you could do surgery now or we can just watch and wait. The tumour that I had um, was on the left-hand side of my brain and I am right-handed, so that governs everything on the right-hand side of your body. So that basically the where it was, it was in a place where it could have had an effect on my speech. So to be told that and to be told the list of risks that you have with brain surgery, I was petrified. I said, I cannot do this. I, I can't go and have surgery. I have a one-year-old at home. I'm working. How, how does this work? I, I can't do this. So we decided, obviously I was, I was a little bit um, on edge when I went in. We decided we're going to scan you again in August time. So I had another scan in August. That was a contrast scan. So where they basic, basically put a dye in so they can see it a bit better. And again, it had grown ever so slightly. And again, we were faced with the same um, options. Do you want to take it out now or shall we look at it again? And again, I just was not in a good headspace. I was imagining the absolute worst. And I said, no, I, I just cannot do surgery. So again, still working, still doing college. I kind of just put my head into everything else to try and not think about it. 
and hop, skip and a jump. We went to November time and I went in on Friday the 13th of November thinking, no, no, this is going to be a good day. This is going to be a good luck day for me. And unfortunately it wasn't. It had doubled in size and I was basically told this needs to come out. And do you think even though you were throwing yourself into everything else and kind of just throwing that in, uh, uh, kicking it down the line a little bit, was it giving you a chance to process it? I mean, you're six months on now, so Mm. you have a better idea or a bit more of an acceptance than at the first appointment. Do you know what? To be honest with you, it was a bit of a double-edged sword in, in a way because it gave me a lot of time to think and I am the type of person that I'll research everything. I'll start talking to people. I, I don't bury my head in the sand. Whereas I know that works for a lot of people. It doesn't work for me. So in some ways, that was kind of like harder for me because I was talking to people and I was Googling everything and I was trying to find out as much information as I could. And that was nearly scaring me a little bit more. So you could argue that it was a good thing that I could, you know, accept in a way. But there was another part of me that was really like bigging myself up in my head to have some sort of surgery and what does that mean and how am I going to react to the surgery? So it in, in a lot of ways, it wasn't great for me. I didn't tell anybody. Nobody knew. My my close family knew that I was after being diagnosed with a brain tumour. For five, six months, nobody knew. So I walked around putting a brave face on, not telling anybody. And that was really tough. And is there an association? Was there somebody that you could call for support? Yes, thankfully. Um, As I mentioned earlier on, I'm the type of person that likes to find out everything and Google and, you know, research. And I was then able to get in touch with Brain Tumour Ireland, among other people that had gone through similar diagnoses. But Brain Tumour Ireland themselves, which are the only charity in all of Ireland that support people that have been diagnosed with some type of brain tumour and their families. Um, I reached out to them. They put me in touch with people that had had similar diagnoses that I was able to talk to. I was able to go on to their support group and I found that really helpful. Yeah, because that's what you want. You want shared experience. I mean, mm-hmm. Google is just a vast dark hole that you can go down and it, some of it's not even specific to you. So to speak to real people, Irish people who had had the same diagnosis and, and similar surgery must have been a real godsend. But either way, it's still you and you still had no guarantees. So what did you know about the surgery? Because as you say, for anyone, brain surgery just sounds really, really risky yeah. and dangerous, which it is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think what I will say is I thought I knew what fear was before all this happened. And then I realised what fear is because I think I, for five months, just sat in this hole of what am I going to do? How am I going to react to the surgery? Because as you say, it's a craniotomy surgery. They are opening up your skull and they are going in and they are basically messing around in there to try and remove what's in there. And the other thing about it is, which is very hard to get your head around, you actually don't know until they take it out what type of grade it is. So brain tumours can go from grade one right through to grade four. So a grade one, a meningioma type tumour is the ones that are what what the surgeons would say the best ones to have because they are slow growing. They are typically not cancerous, but again, no guarantees. However, that type of surgery, like every other surgery that you might have, has a million risks. So some of the risks are, you know, you could have a stroke, you could bleed out. Unfortunately, these things are the risks. Um, You could have seizures. It's a really, really long list. And I felt 
so unprepared uh, for the recovery. I kind of got my head around, I have to have this surgery. It has to come out. But then you're facing with... What type of tumour is it? I don't know until they take it out and they send it to pathology to test. So I, you have it out. You are after having the surgery. You pray to God, this is going to go okay. I'm going to come out okay. Um, another thing I was faced with, as you mentioned earlier on, am I going to have speech complications because of where it was? Am I going to have to have speech therapy? Am I going to have to have radiotherapy? Because if it's a grade two or higher, um. I don't know what that means. Is it going to be a diagnosis of cancer? We don't know. So I had the surgery. It was a success, thank God. Um, He got it all out. So that again is another thing. They may not get it all out because the idea is you go in for the surgery. You want to come out in the best possible way that you can come out. You want to come out like yourself. You don't want to lose who you are. And like your brain governs everything in your body. Your brain, no matter what you do, your emotions, how you speak, how you process information, your personality, that is all governed by your brain. And the biggest thing that I was fearful of is if I go in and have this, what way am I going to come out? Who am I going to be when I come out of this? So you hope and pray you're going to have a really, really good surgery. He's going to get it all out and then I'm going to recover really, really well. Unfortunately for me, I had, yes, I had a great surgery. It all got removed thank God, um, two days later, started having seizures. So then you're, you are propelled into this recovery phase. And I was very naive. I remember saying to work, I'm going to see you in a couple of weeks. I'm going to be fine. I'm going to come back in. I'm going to be back in. I'm going to be doing what I was doing before. Absolutely not. That was not the case. I would say it, it can take up to about two years for you to fully recover from that type of surgery. I am now coming up to nearly my two-year craniversary, as we, as we call it, um, my anniversary from my craniotomy. Um, I had a lot of seizures initially. I went for about a month. So in 2020, the month of December was full of seizures. Every couple of days I had a seizure. Um, we were trying to get the medication right. So it takes a long time for you to get medication right when you're having seizures. And there are so many different types of seizures. The one I had was what's called a focal aware seizure. So basically I knew what was happening, but I lost the power of my speech for a couple of minutes at the beginning. And then what happens is it travels down one side of your body. So it's kind of like pins and needles that goes down your body. Extremely scary. And especially knowing what I knew about where my tumour was and the effects it could have on my speech. I think to this day, that's something that I struggle with. I always kind of think about if I trip up on a word because I'm tired or something. I'm like, oh, is that is that a seizure coming on? Please God, no. It's so, so scary. And to be in this recovery that you do not know what that recovery looks like and to be just going through the motions and trying to get well and trying to like show up for your family, show up for your friends. It's really difficult. That was such a climb for you, but you did get to the top and over. I mean, people can hear how strong you are and and, and bubbly. So you are still yourself. Thankfully. (laughs) But you have an extra element because it's given you a real appreciation for life, hasn't it? Absolutely. I think, I was saying this to you before, I think before all of this, I was kind of the type of person, I'm definitely a go-getter. I'm I'm the type of person that likes to be busy, likes to be out there doing loads of different projects. And I was kind of just going from one to the next to the next. And I wasn't really living in the now, if I'm honest, on reflection, when I think about it, if I look back. Now, I feel like 
well, tomorrow is definitely not promised and you have to live in the now. And what it, ha- it has spurred me on to do, thankfully, is something that I was putting off for years. And I'm sure some of the listeners will attest to this as well. I have been a singer in wedding bands as long as I can remember. I've been doing it probably for about 15 years now, in and out of different bands and just loving life and, and loving what I do. Music is an absolute passion. It's one of the biggest things that I take into every kind of aspect of my life and it really helps me when you're sad when you're happy music is means the world to me but forever I have been putting off my own music and I've been saying oh, I'm going to do it I'm going to do it and a year would go by and I'd say no I'm definitely going to do it next year I'm definitely going to do it and then life happens like everybody we get busy and I just kept putting it off and when I had this traumatic experience I was like I cannot put this off anymore if I don't do this now I will forever not forgive myself I will regret it forever and I have to do it so thankfully in the middle of my recovery when I was trying to kind of just get well and get okay I reached out to a producer that I had heard of and I said you know what I'm just going to go in and I'm going to say look here's what I have thinking he was going to say you have no have no notion what you're doing when it comes to singer songwriter come back to me when you know what you're doing and thankfully he didn't say that and he said no what you have is really really good here let's work through it and in February of this year I released my first single which was definitely like testing the water dip my toe in it and you know what if people don't like it that's okay I've tried it and, and that's the, the biggest thing for me. I was like, I have to try this because, again, I regret it forever. And if people don't want to listen to it, that's OK. If my daughter listens to it, which she does, amazing. That's the best thing in the world. The second single came out um, a couple of, couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago, um, Just Like You. And I wrote that. I actually wrote part of that song in Beaumont, sitting in the waiting room, waiting to hear about one of my scans. And I just said, you know what? It's an uplifting song. It's very personal to me. It's all about my journey. And I hope it can resonate with people that have had a diagnosis of some sort or have gone through something traumatic that they've had to get themselves out the other side of. So it means the world to me. And again, I just hope it can help somebody. Yeah, and uh, you're and you're doing it. And you're doing it for you because you've proved we can do things that we think we can't. How is your health now? What are uh, the doctors and uh, and the medical team saying now? Thankfully, I had a full removal, and my diagnosis was a meningioma tumor. It was what's referred to as atypical. So that basically means non-cancerous. However a higher uh, recurrence rate. So the recurrence rate of a grade two atypical meningioma is 30 to 40%. So what that means for me is I get scanned every six months. I will probably be on the anti-seizure medication for the rest of my life because I had so many of them. Um, I'm absolutely fine with that because if it means that I can drive and I can be okay and I can be with my daughter and not have seizure, then win-win for everybody. I'm scanned every six months and we just hope and pray that I don't get another one at some stage. Um, Yeah, so like, look, it wasn't cancerous. It's definitely traumatic, but I am a good news story, if you like. There are so many people, there are 400 people a year that are diagnosed with brain tumours in Ireland. And they can range from the one that I had all the way up to the really, really horrific ones like glioblastomas which some of your listeners might be aware of from the type, the likes of Tom Parker um, of the Wanted fame who recently uh, passed away from something like that. So, you know, it, 
it's really traumatic to get a diagnosis of any kind, especially a brain tumour, because you think about, I have to have surgery or do I have to have radiotherapy, chemotherapy? But for me, you know, I'm, I'm in the system for life, if you like, but I'm being looked after and I'm well and I'm out the other side of it, thank God. Well, you're more than a good news story. You're an absolute beacon of light. The single is called Just Like You. It's out now. Where can people find you? All streaming platforms. So you can look me up on Instagram, Twitter, Tully Pamela on Instagram. And the song itself is on iTunes, Spotify, all the streaming platforms. So if you just look up my name, you'll be able to hear it. Um, the one th- other thing I wanted to say as well, for the charity for Brain Tumor Ireland, um, they have their annual Wear a Hat Day on November 4th which is basically trying to raise money for the charity to help anybody like me who had to reach out to them to avail of their services. You can text BTI to 50300 and donate €4. Euro. And what they're also looking for is people to wear their most inspirational um, hats on that day and post them onto social media websites to help raise funds and much needed awareness. Pamela, thank you so much for coming on. And that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my guests, to my producer Aidan McKelvey and to Simon Keane and Hugo De Silva who was on sound. And thanks, of course, to you for listening. Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna. Sunday morning at 8 on News Talk.